0: We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 today. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's some around the room. Uh, You can take one. You can steal one. That's our gift to you. We have plenty. Some are even purple. So if you're a big TCU fan, you can take that one. Um, While you're flipping to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start specifically around verse 15. But um, I want to tell you about a story um, about a girl named Leah that I once heard. Leah is about seven or eight years old while this is all happening. She uh, comes from a background where she is abused. She's neglected. She is devastatingly malnourished. Um, She doesn't know when her next meal is going to be. Her parents just really, really aren't there and really aren't the greatest people in the world. Um, Leah goes on through life as a child who can't count on their next meal just scrapping, uh, piling up and hoarding food and and getting food even from like garbage cans and just leftover food that's just sitting on the counter and rotting that her parents have left behind because that's the only thing that she can count on to feed herself. And again, she's devastatingly malnourished. Long story short, uh, Leah gets put into the foster care system and she's put up for adoption, which is great. And she ends up getting adopted by one of the most gracious, loving, caring, a uh, couple that you could ever imagine. Just really good people. And they welcome her into her home and she's there and she's living in this nice home. Her pro- her parents obviously are, are reassuring her, hey, you're never going to have to like miss a meal again. Like we will feed you. We have we have the means to do that. You will never go hungry again. And they give her a bed. They give her, they just take care of her. Um, a week g- kind of goes by and they're they're sharing life with Leah and things are going all right. She's a little timid, obviously, like new parents, new family. And again, she's around. Seven or eight, so she's shy, she's young. And a week goes on and through that time, the parents start to notice there's this like stench coming from her bedroom. Um, And for a little while, they thought it was just because she wasn't taking a bath, which was a thing, Um, but it starts to grow a little more potent. And they're like, man, what is that? Like, is that her dirty clothes that are just laying around? Is she not showering? What is that? Did an animal die in her room? We don't know. Um, and so one day, while she's outside playing, they go into her room to check. And what they find is underneath her pillows, underneath her bed, and in her closet was all this food that she'd been hoarding. Leftovers from their dinner, their breakfast, cereal, like rotten fruit that she had just been collecting and stashing because she's living out of this scarcity mindset of, I might not ever eat again. What they found was that she was operating out of this this hoarding mindset, this scarcity mindset, not believing that she had a family who would now take care of her and feed her for the rest of her life. She thought there might be another time where she might need to survive, and she kicked into that mindset and is hoarding all this food, and it just grew potent. And she went immediately to, right, out of her insecurity, out of her her desperation of like, I need to take care of myself, went to things that she could hold onto and cling to and store up for herself. Leah's story is not unique. That actually happens a lot with foster care children who come from that kind of background. That's actually something that they train you on if you're adopting a kid and they think that might be an issue. Uh, And I think it's not totally unique to us either. I think when we are insecure, I think when we are looking for something to put our hope in, we immediately turn to the tangible. We immediately turn to the things that we can hold and to the measurable because those are the things that we can control. And we put our hope in in those things when we need reassurance and a sense of security we turn to the tangible and the measurable we turn to doing things right like think of even what we're doing here it's easy to do a checklist and knock off uh, a checklist and in the christian life it's like okay i'll go to church i'll read my bible it's easy to do those things because you feel like you're in control but we also turn to relationships we turn to people for validation for approval for a sense of identity we turn to the measurable and the tangible because we're restless, we're insecure and we're uneasy. So we put our hope and trust in something. And so today, book of Galatians is all about swapping out that restlessness and that insecurity for rest and assurance in the promises of God. What is the promise of God? What are the promises of God? Are they multiple? Why does it even matter that we put our trust in them? Why does it even matter that we live in them? Uh, to begin answering that, we're going to reread the last two verses that Ben ended on last week. So verses 13 and 14, we can throw them up, and that's kind of how we're going to kick off. Um, we're going to reread these, and then we're just going to keep sifting through Galatians chapter 3 to finish off finish off the chapter. Um, there's going to be a ton to unpack. So 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles or non-Jewish people so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then he goes on. He's giving an an example. This is verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or made official. ton to unpack here. We'll stop right there and we'll do our best to cover all of it. We will talk about the law. We'll talk about the whole offspring offsprings thing. Um, but first we need to understand the promise that Paul is referring to, which by the way, if you want to get a preview of where we're going, we're going to talk about the promise that God gave to Abraham. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two, we're going to talk about the law given to Moses, and then we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Jesus welcome to church. We talk about Jesus. Um, That's kind of the skeleton of what we're doing. So first, let's look at the promise uh, that God makes Abraham. To do this, we got to go back to the very first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, which by the way, I love that those are the first five words in all of scripture. In the beginning, God created. I think that is beautiful. What did God create? The heavens and the earth. The sky and the land. He created order out of chaos, everything out of nothing, light out of darkness. He called into existence and being things that once were not. He created life and it was good and it was beautiful. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And it's at this point that God goes from calling all of his creation good and beautiful to very good and very beautiful. God created humanity This is what we see in Genesis 1, to be in relationship with him, to be his partners is another way to think about it, to cultivate and take care of the earth and to mirror and mimic his character to the rest of the world forever. But then the story goes on, second page of the Bible. Sin enters the world through a small, subtle lie, and humanity, Adam and Eve, decide to call their own shot, right? They decide they know what's best. They rebel from God and thus break their partnership and their relationship with him. And the result is just one big downward spiral. Everything that God created as good was becoming undone. It was broken. And everything that was once designed to last forever is now destined to wither away and die. So what does God do? He says, I love my creation way too much to leave them in this world in that state of brokenness. I created people to know me, to love me, and to be in relationship with me, and I created this world to be filled with goodness and beauty, so I'm going to rescue and redeem and restore all of it. I'm going to send them my son, and he will bless and restore the entire world. Enter Genesis 12. This is where Abraham comes in. Uh, We get introduced to this guy named Abraham. Originally, his name's Abram. Uh, God loves to change people's names and give them a new identity. Um, Genesis 12 verses one through three says, now the Lord said to Abram or Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Quick nug on God choosing Abraham, by the way. Abraham was quite honestly just a random dude. He was a pagan who worshiped other gods, pretty likely. Um, There was nothing special about him. God chose him because God chose him, just simply by grace. And he made a covenant with him, not a contract. Meaning a contract is something with two ends of the deal, right? Like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. As long as you uphold your end of the deal, I'll uphold mine. A covenant, not that way. A covenant is just I'm committed to you no matter what you do. And Abraham kind of failed uh, multiple times before God. At one point, he even sold uh, and gave away his wife, uh, passed her off as his sister so that another man could sleep with her, which was pretty gnarly. Um, At one point, he didn't even believe that God was actually gonna make him a great nation and make his name great. Um, And so God takes Abraham and and his wife, Sarah, they're like 90 years old at this time. They don't think they're ever gonna have kids. And he says, hey, look up at, at the stars in the sky. And they look up and he says, I want you to count them. They try counting. They can't do it. I don't know if you've ever tried to count the stars in the sky, but you kind of lose count after like 39. Um, But God promises Abraham that he would multiply his descendants as more numerous than the stars in the sky. And he would be their God. He would give them a specific piece of land for forever. And he would bless Abraham and all of his descendants so that everyone else in the world would also be blessed. In short, God's promise to Abraham, and I'll throw this up here for you, consisted of of three things. It consisted of a promised land, of promised descendants, and of promised blessing, and therefore redemption for the whole world. And with a single promise to Abraham, God puts his plan of redemption into motion. He begins his plan to restore humanity to relationship with himself and restore the whole world back to goodness and beauty and flourishing. But all that brings up a great question. That's the promise to Abraham. 430 years later, God creates a law, right? And he gives that law to Moses. Why did he create a strict rules-driven law after making a promise to rescue his people? Is abiding in that law and obeying its rules how you fix things? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that how you restore and earn your relationship back with God? And that's what Paul continues to address in chapter three. So look in verse uh Let's start back in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law given to Moses, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant uh, so as to make the promise void. Because if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's talk about what the law is. What is it? Why was it given? Specifically, like I said, given to Moses. Uh, think of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, it was 430 years after Abraham, long time after. Israelites, God's chosen people, were once captive in, is- uh, in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt. He takes them into this promised land, and then he gives them the law through Moses. Uh, they consisted of kind of three things. Of, there were moral laws, which were like, here's how you live think 10 commandments, there were ceremonial laws, uh, which were, here's how you worship God, here's how you sacrifice to God, created that entire system, all that kind of stuff. And then there were like civil laws of, here's how you operate as a community. Um, so when someone does something wrong and passes off their wife as a sister, here's how you, uh, you reprimand them. So it, that's kind of what the law consisted of. But Paul reminds us of three main purposes of the law here. Uh, purpose number one, we see in verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Definitely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he says, purpose number one uh, is that the law was given to reveal our sin and brokenness, to reveal our desperate need for a savior. Verse 22, he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned under sin sounds pretty heavy and gnarly, but that's highlighting purpose number one, to reveal our desperate need of a savior. Paul is reminding the Galatians that the law cannot give life. It can't give salvation, but the law was given to show us how sinful and how broken humanity truly is and how inadequate we actually are to live up to the standards of a holy and perfect God. It was given to reveal our sinfulness and our desperate need for a savior, imprison everything under sin. Romans 3.20, another letter that Paul wrote, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Which by the way, little nugget, my last sermon, Galatians chapter two, we were introduced, Paul introduced us to this idea of justified by faith. All of chapter three is him defending this idea. He's saying the law was put in place to expose our sin, to show us we could do nothing to earn or inherit life or the promise or salvation or the promised blessing of God on our own, apart from faith in Christ, who remember chapter two says, who loved us and gave himself up for us. So that's purpose number one. We see purpose number two in verses 24 through 26. He says, so then, The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Purpose number two of the law. The law was to serve as a guardian. It was given as a guard and a guide to pursue holiness. And that word guardian uh, translates also to the word tutor. So if you want to read a note and tutor every time it's used here, um, this specific word, it's used in the context of, you can think of it as a strict school teacher or a guardian slash caretaker of a child until they reach maturity. Basically the law was given to just be a teacher to say, Hey, live this way, do these things, love God, love people. Don't cheat on your husband or your wife. Uh, And also, don't kill people, right? Those things would not contribute to a good, flourishing world, which I created. So the law was like a teacher until Christ came. And think about it. If a tutor—I know a lot of you have tutors. I see some of y'all in Common Grounds studying, like, calculus, and it looks like a foreign language to me. But if a tutor does their job right, and a teacher does their job right, and if the student, you, the learner, right, receives what they have to offer well— there will no longer be a time at one point for you to need that tutor anymore, right? You only have a tutor or a school teacher for a set and temporary amount of time. And that was the purpose of the law. It was only for a temporary amount of time uh, until you didn't need it anymore. And that's what Paul is reminding Galatians of here. He's saying, hey, the law was given to be your teacher, to be a guide, to help you refine how you honor God, but you don't need it anymore because Christ is here. You have Christ now. Christ has given us himself, live in light, of that. That is where your hope is in. Um, you don't need the tutor anymore. Here's the other thing about laws and about rules and stuff like that. Rules don't typically create the obedience that they command, right? Rules guide behavior, but they don't create it. Think about um, think about a stop sign or a traffic light or a speed limit. There's a, a street next to where I live, which four years ago, didn't have a single stop sign on it. Uh, and it had it had a speed limit that said 35 miles per hour, but people would fly down this sucker at like 50 or 65. Uh, it's just a long straight, about a mile long, literally there's no reason to not. It's just like calling speed down me. Um, after a while though, there were, were like a ton of near misses. Like people almost got hurt, there was a couple wrecks. And so they decided to put up stop signs. Those stop signs and that speed limit don't create uh, it within me or other drivers, this desire to now drive the speed limit, right? There's still a choice for me to look at a 35 mile per hour speed limit sign and still go 65 miles per hour, right? We all do it. Uh, There's still a choice for you to not just completely stop at a stop sign, but it is there to guide your behavior of saying, hey, if you don't do this and if you don't take this into account, you might get in a wreck. You might hurt someone else. That is kind of what the law is. It's not creating the behavior. It's just guiding your behavior. The law was given to guide desire to honor God, not create it. Think about this um, to kind of tie it to our context. This is what I was thinking through. Again, we go back to the measurable and the tangible things. And I'm thinking about my own life in the Christian life. Things like listening to a sermon or a podcast or getting involved in biblical community and going to uh, a Bible study or a quiet time, those things in and of themselves will not create a desire within you to follow Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit is what creates the desire in you. And then you go to church to guide that desire. You read your Bible to know God more. You throw yourself into biblical community to be pushed closer to Christ, but community in and of itself, just to take that for example, will not save you. Community, as great as it is, in and of itself will not produce the desire to love Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But we go back to those things all the time because they're tangible. We go back to things like community and quiet times or if you're like me, before I was even to Jesus, just this mentality of, well, I'm better than the guy next to me. I'm not as drunk as him at the parties. I don't sleep around as much as he does. I do a little bit, but I'm not as bad as him. Helps clear my conscience. Or I'll come to church or go to a Bible study to get like this spiritual reset almost. I remember doing that all the time of like, okay, I messed up this weekend. I'll go study the Bible with these buddies or I'll go to church and that'll give me a spiritual reset. And I put my hope in that, right? Right? And I put my trust in that. And that mentality becomes the thing that I I cling to um, and put my hope in. But if you do that, you're missing the point. Not totally unlike a child who is once starved and forgets that they belong to a family who is ensured that they will never go hungry again. We easily, easily hold on to these good things like reading your Bible and community, right? At these God given things, but we will always be restless because we're not living, actually living in light of his promises or resting in Christ himself. So that leads us to the third purpose of the law. Third purpose of the law was just to point us directly to Jesus, to point God's people to the coming Messiah or the coming Christ, the long awaited, hoped for king of God's people who was a descendant and offspring from the line of Abraham who would bless and redeem the entire world. Look at verse, go back up to verse uh, 16. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one uh, offspring who is Christ. This is uh, basically just Paul making a clever observation on Old Testament scripture uh, and making his own little commentary. Uh, about God's promise to Abraham. It, he's saying it refers to one single person who receives the promise. Paul's clearly saying that is Christ, uh, a descendant from the line of Abraham, and Christ is the one true ultimate recipient of the promise. But then we see that G- Jesus is also the fulfillment of the law. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple random pieces of scripture up here for you. Matthew 5:17, Jesus himself says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets and get rid of them. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill Romans eight verses three and four says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. The law and all of its moral obligations, its sacrificial system, which There's so many nuances that Christ fulfills. And if you want to know more, you can talk to me after this. I think it's fascinating. Uh, All of it, though, was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He was the first and only perfectly, truly only perfectly obedient human to meet the standard of a holy and perfect God, to meet the standard of a law. And therefore, the only one undeserving of the penalty of the law, which was death. Yet in his loving kindness and in his compassion, in his grace, in his mercy, on humanity's behalf, he bore that punishment for us so that we could receive life and restoration to God. Christ is the ultimate recipient of the promise and the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And through faith in Christ, we also become recipients or beneficiaries, right? We get full advantage like an adopted child of that promise. Through faith in Jesus, we share in the blessing given to Jesus, right? We share in Christ's righteousness. It is now counted to us as our own. We share in the inheritance as members of God's family. We are adopted into this family, which we are going to spend all of the next chunk of chapter four just talking about this idea of adoption and being heirs with Christ and, and uh, being in the family of God. But we become recipients and beneficiaries of promised redemption, and that is the grace of God. So what, what do we do with, with all of this? What do we do in light of this promise, this temporary law that's now fulfilled in Christ? What does that change for you guys who are sitting here right now? What does it change about how you live your life? First thing that I want to start on is this. Faith, faith in Jesus, faith in God is expressed in radical obedience. Here's what I mean. Let's go back to the story of Abraham. In Abraham 12, verses 1 through 3, God makes his promise to him. And then the next verse, verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord told him. The Lord told him, get up from your land, get up from your home, get up from your family, leave it all, and go to the land that I will show you. And he says, I'll make you a great nation. I Here's my promise to you if you do that. And so Abraham went as the Lord told him. Then in Genesis 22, just a couple chapters later, uh he abraham is actually given a son isaac so one of the promises is fulfilled god is showing up to uh be true to his word then god does something wildly crazy he says okay i've now given you the son that you've been looking forward to for literally 100 years of your life and he says now i want you to take your son isaac i want you to take him up to an altar and i want you to sacrifice him before me what And so Abraham takes his son, Isaac, puts him on an altar, literally has a knife. And it says in scripture, he's literally coming down on his son, ready to sacrifice his own son, which by the way, is just a big foreshadow to Jesus. If you want to make that tie in the middle of the air, this knife is there. And then the Lord shows up and the Lord says, stop, don't do that because you have trusted in me because of your faith. I will indeed bless you. I will surely bless you. Wild story, but Abraham's faith is expressed in this wild, radical obedience. When you trust God and his promises through faith, you do things that will seem absolutely bizarre and absolutely crazy to the rest of the world. Not because you're earning anything from God, right? Abraham didn't believe he was earning anything from God. He just trusted and believed God. You don't cling to the old and former things anymore. You don't search for life and security in the things you once did because you now have Jesus. You don't sit back and indulge in your sin anymore. You live out your faith. Your faith is expressed in radical obedience. I think, too, what we do with all this is we are encouraged and reminded to rest and root our lives in the promises of God, right? To have a life of radical obedience, you've got to have your faith in his promises, which we're going to go over just a bunch of promises here in a second, but to do both of those things, to know a what God commands of you uh, and what to be obedient to, and then what his promises actually are biggest encouragement. And if you want something real practical, you've just got to be in his word. There's nothing that will compare to being in the word of God to know him, to know what he calls you to, to know what he thinks of you. um, You've got to be in his word. Now, I kind of, also, by the way, good excuse, freshman girls, if you're in here to go to the Tuesday night thing, they're gonna kick off a weekly Bible study. So if you don't know where to start, you can start there. And guys, we meet here Monday and Tuesday nights at seven o'clock and we just get in his word. Um, But I kind of wanna end on this. That is like the overall promise to Abraham that Paul is referring to here in the book of Galatians of like this promise of land, descendants, and then blessing, right? Redemption for the entire world. But we hear about promises of God all the time, right? Multiple. Uh, in Christ, there are multiple promises that we are given um, in Christ. So I'm throwing a couple up here for you. Um, this is not exhaustive, but these are just some of them that I want to remind us of. In Christ, you were promised rescue and salvation from sin. You see it in John 3:16 and 17, also in Romans 1, 16 and 17. In Christ. Romans 8:1 says there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the spirit of freedom of life has set you free from the spirit of sin and death. We are no longer condemned in our sin. We're promised new life in 2 Corinthians 5:17. He says, "In Christ, I have made you a new creation. I've rewritten your story." John 10, 10 it's very similar. He promises abundant life if we're in Christ. Uh, comfort and peace are promised to us. Peace that surpasses all understanding, comfort in every affliction. We're promised rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight if we are in Christ. And there is so, so many more. Second um, Corinthians 1, though, says for no matter how many promises of God there are, each of them find their yes in Jesus. And our response is amen for the glory of God. Now, I also know there are people in this room who uh, are desperately looking for something to put their hope in, desperately looking for joy. I have talked to so many of you in this room who are just stuck and confused at the fact that you wake up some days and are sad and you don't know why, and you feel stuck in despair and depression. I've talked to multiple people in this room who are going through real suffering, real hurt, and are experiencing real grief. I know some of us have even lost family members and close friends recently. What are we hoping? Where's our joy? What are the promises of God here? One of my favorite promises that I just want to simply put in front of you is found in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it for you. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying nor pain any more; for the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, "Behold, I am making all things new. If you are in this room and you say that you belong to Christ and you believe that you belong to Christ, my encouragement is that you would rest in the promises of God that he's made for you. yearn for them, long for them." in the same way this of long for that day to come where there will be no more death, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow because your faith in God runs deep. If that's not you and you're in this room and you're like, I don't know if I belong to Christ or I'm not sure if I want to, A, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're still listening to me talk for 30 minutes but I believe wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit has you in here for a reason. And I would just simply ask that you hear me say that there is true rest there's true assurance, joy, life, peace, security in relationship with the God who created you, who knows you at your best and knows you at your worst and still says, I love you. Would you belong to him if that's you? My hope and my prayer is that we would be people who just don't make sense to the rest of the world, who have peace, un, not, Peace that just surpasses all understanding, when we have every reason to be anxious; that we would have an indestructible joy when we have every reason to be defeated and discouraged. I, my hope and prayer is that our faith in the promises of God and our faith in Jesus, our confidence in the Lord, just runs deep. Let me pray. Father, your promises are good. Your word is true. You've always been faithful and you always will be. You've written a story of redemption and you're kind to let us into it. You're kind to give us your son. You're kind to give us Jesus, the only one undeserving of death to die in our place. God, you have given us everything by giving us yourself. Lord, I pray for the people in this room who, who may not know you. I just pray that you would give them eyes to see you and a heart to know you and a heart to know your grace and your love and your truth and your forgiveness. And Father, for each of us in this room, I just pray that you teach our hearts to trust you more. Would our faith in you run deep? Increase our faith, help our unbelief, Teach us to praise your name again and again and cling to your promises. Father, all of your promises find their yes in Jesus, and our response is simply amen. For your glory, God. Amen.